you preach or when you teach, particularly though when you preach, it's important to stay lockstep with the tone and the manner of the passage that you're preaching. And I've said this before, so if I'm preaching on a lament, I'm not going to be cracking jokes. I'm not going to try to make it funny. If you're going to preach on something that's incredibly practical, like perhaps a, a vignette of verses in Proverbs, then I'm not going to go deep, deep, deep and wax eloquent in theology and doctrine. And if you're going to preach on something lighthearted, then it's good to get really practical. It's good to really enjoy. It's good to come together to the Word of God. What we're going to see in the book of Ecclesiastes is that you need to engage your mind. Now, some of you right now have an internal groan that's emitting from your soul. I did not come to church to think. Came to church to be told what to do and leave, and I've checked it off for a week. Posh upon you. You come to church to think. You want your mind engaged. And Ecclesiastes is going to demand that you engage your mind. Now listen, that doesn't mean that it's going to be intellectually difficult to comprehend. You don't need a college degree to understand Ecclesiastes. But you do need your mind in gear. So that's something that we can discipline ourselves to do. So I'm inviting you to think with me particularly in the introduction, to join with me as we examine what the author has for us in the Word of God. Have you ever wondered, by the way, here's your first thinking button. I'm going to tap it on. Ready? We're going to click it. Here we go. Have you ever wondered, why is it called Ecclesiastes? You know, I'm going to confess to you, I never ever wondered that question until about a month and a half ago when I first started really preparing for this. And I didn't know the answer, so I've had to go, and I had to investigate, and I had to research, just like most of us. And here's what I found, is that the word for church in the New Testament, the Greek word, is ekklesia. Everybody say ekklesia. You're speaking street Greek right now, ekklesia. That's the word, common word for church in the New Testament, which forms really the root word for Ecclesiastes, except there's a bit of a twist on it. What Ecclesiastes means, what that word means in the Hebrew, it's actually a Greek word, what it means is one who stands to preach to the church. So what you have in Ecclesiastes is a collection of sermons from one of the greatest preachers that's ever walked this planet. Who is that preacher? Well, look at verse 1. You're going to see some identification. He's the son of David king in Jerusalem, and you might be thinking, obviously, that's Solomon, except not unusually, because this happens all the time now, modern theology, modern uh, scholars now think that it's not Solomon. It used to be pretty much assumed this was Solomon. I'm going to actually side with early church fathers. I do think this is Solomon. It's really the same way that the book of Proverbs opens, and that was written by Solomon as well. So I believe it is Solomon who wrote this, even if it's not, whatever, it doesn't really make or break the book. But it appears to be Solomon who is now an older man, probably at the waning years of his life. He is repentant, he, his wisdom that God has given to him is finally bearing fruit. 
And if you get to the end of the book at some point, which we will eventually, not too long actually, this is not going to be an incredibly long sermon series, but when you get to the end of the book in chapter 12, he's speaking to the people, he's preaching to the congregation, to Israel and to the nations of the earth, and he's actually speaking and he uses the term son. I don't believe that's biological son, although I'm sure he taught his wisdom to his own children. I think he's particularly speaking to young people. He's preparing them to lead. So we've got a collection of sermons from, I believe, Solomon, where he is preaching to the peoples, the congregation, Israel, all the nations, particularly targeting young people. And then we discover immediately, this is an incredibly difficult book. I'm going to tell you right now, it is the hardest book I've ever tried to prepare for with a sermon series. Martin Luther would agree with me. He said this, this book is one of the more difficult books in all of Scripture, one which no one has ever completely mastered. I could have thrown a lot of quotes from famous people that are preachers that keep saying the same thing. This is a really difficult book to preach. It's a really difficult book to understand. So I want you to imagine, you ready? Let's do it, to sort of get your holy imagination going. I want you to imagine an older Solomon, he's an old man, and he steps up behind a pulpit, probably very slowly, very carefully, gets behind the pulpit, takes a deep breath, and he begins to preach a message that is so powerful that it is brilliantly relevant today just like it was then. And this is the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, just a really quick aside, if you're older like I am, um, if you're younger, you're not going to have to think back quite so far. If you're older like I am, do you remember when you were taught in your English composition classes that if you want to write an essay, it's usually made up of three parts. You begin with the introduction, and then you write the body, and then you get give your conclusion. You remember that? Introduction, body, conclusion. Three classic ingredients to an essay. That's exactly what we have here. And today we're going to look at the introduction. It's Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 through 3. And Solomon is going to give to us, in a preaching methodology, his main point, or thesis, if you will. And here's his main point. Look at verses 2 and 3. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun and all of Cornerstone steps to the edge of the bridge ready to jump? <laughs> Sounds kind of depressing, doesn't it? Wow, is this the entire book? Well, actually, it kind of is. But I'm going to show you what this really means, I hope, in a way that's going to be like sunlight peeking through the leafy tapestry of a jungle. It's going to be absolutely beautiful. Here we go. You ready? Three points. Number one, what is the meaning of vanity? Let's at least start there and get some handholds on what he's talking about. The words vanity or vanities, plural, you're going to find it 38 times in this book. We're going to be talking about it a lot. A lot of it's at the beginning and a lot of it's at the end of the book. Five of them already, I've already read to you. It's in the first line of the sermon. It's in its very introduction. Well, here's the Hebrew language. This is actually kind of cool. 
You know, you and I, we can get into our uh, word processors, whether it's, you know, your MacBook or your uh, tablet, your Word document, whatever. It doesn't matter. You can do it with both. Your Google Docs, you can, if you really want to emphasize something you're writing, what do you do? You underline it, you italicize it, you bold it, you put exclamation points, perhaps quotes over it. They did not have any of these grammatical devices in the Hebrew language. So if they really wanted to accentuate and emphasize a point, what they did was they created a superlative. And one of the ways that you create a superlative is repetition. So you've got five times the word vanity repeated. This is Solomon saying, listen, I really want you to get my main point. Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So I'm going to illustrate the word, though, before I define it for you. I will define it. Two of the mornings this past week, I have a motorcycle, so I ride my motorcycle as much as I possibly can, and I'm riding to the office. I have an incredibly wicked commute, all of 1.5 miles to church. So I'm riding up over Forks, Paxanosa Hill, and there's this layer of mist and fog everywhere. But even in that 1.5 mile commute, by the time I got to where I was going, which is Mark Street Campus, where my office is, and from where I started a mile and a half away, that mist, that fog, was already beginning to burn off, already beginning to dissipate. All right, well, hang on. Let me illustrate it again. It's not going to be long. Probably tomorrow, by the way, if you get up early enough and you step outside where we're expecting a high of 59 years, 59 degrees in the temperature, and you exhale, maybe go jogging, you're going to see that plume of vapor coming out of your mouth, that cold air. But you're only going to see it for a split second before it disappears. Maybe this summer you took a wand and some of that bubble solution with your kids, or maybe you're 60 years old and you just play with bubbles. I don't know, but you took that wand and you dipped it into that little bottle and you pull it out and you blew a bubble and it pops maybe at most five or six seconds later. See, that's the illustration of vanity, but what's it mean? Well, I'm going to show you actually how it's used in other parts of the scriptures before I really just flat out define it for you. So you got to do all of this when you're preaching, because I give you lots of definitions. But isn't it better, isn't it safer? By the way, this is a Bible study technique. Isn't it better just let the Bible define it for you? So here's three ways that the, that the word is used. Two in the old, one in the new. Man is like breath. Psalm 144, his days are like a passing shadow. Now when somebody says like that, when the Bible employs that style of verse, the second part defines the first. So breath is like a passing shadow. You want to know what breath is, which is our word vanity? Well, it's like a passing shadow. So now you know something about vanity. It's quickly passing. And it was fairly insubstantial to begin with, like a shadow. Well, you get to Psalm 39.5. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. So now the second part of that verse explains the first. So what's breath like? Well, it's like a few days in your life. It's like a few hands breaths. You know, horses can be 15 hands high. Well, you measure that out. 
thumb to finger. That's kind of an illustration of how brief life is. Well, James in the New Testament co-ops this word vanity, and he brings it into his epistle. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Now, the first two are the Hebrew word for vanity. The second one, James brings it into the Greek. Now, you might find it interesting to know that that same Hebrew word for vanity is the exact same spelling for the first human being to ever die, Abel. If you take the Hebrew for Abel and the Hebrew for vanity, it's the exact same word. His life was cut short by Cain. So you've seen the pattern. I'm going to define it in a middle, in a minute. But the pattern is this. It's like a mist that's burning off, James says. It's like a few hand breaths. It's like a passing shadow. And then you get to Ecclesiastes 6. Could you do that for me? Would you forward maybe just a few pages? Chapter 6. Look at verse 12 with me. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Now you're really getting more explicit. We are about ready to define it. Vanity, here it is, speaks of that which is brief, insubstantial, now you see it, now you don't. Now, you might have grown up reading Ecclesiastes and heard sermons and read books and maybe surmise that the word vanity just means meaningless. That's how several translations translate it. It's really not a good translation, to be honest with you. The actual better translation is the King James, is R-E-S-V. It's vanity. It's that which is brief, and because it is brief, it doesn't have a lot of root to it. It's very thin. It's very ephemeral. It really lacks substance. That's what the word vanity means. Something that lacks substance because of its brevity. Well, we've got to kind of hasten on a little bit because we've got to bring a little bit more of a handhold to this to get it. So why is everything, number two, why is everything, Solomon says, a vanity of vanities? I mean, is he just having a really bad week? Is he depressed? Does he have dysthymia, which is low-grade depression? It just never leaves you. It's the Eeyore syndrome where nothing ever looks right and the bottle is always half empty. Is that what's going on? Look at verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So we're going to answer the question, why is everything to Solomon a vanity of vanities? We ask the question, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So he's already stated that everything is vanity. He completes his point, and here's his point. You ready? Now this is absolutely massive. You're going to hear it in this entire series. The gain that you and I seek is not available with anything, quote, under the sun, unquote. You can't find gain under the sun. Why? Because everything under the sun is brief, insubstantial, ephemeral, like a passing shadow, like a mist about to evaporate. 
Well, if you want to put it in financial terms, a lot of you think like that. So if you want to put it in a financial phrase, pursuing what is under the sun is going to yield no interest, no return on investment. No ROI. There's just none. The entire book, until his, his concluding thoughts, chapter 12, it's going to explain, it's going to illustrate this very point. There could be no gain, which is a financial word that means you're in the black. You have a positive. You're not in the negative. There could be no gain found in anything under, anything under the sun because simply everything under the sun is vanity of vanities. Now, you ready? I'm going to skip to the end just for a brief second. There is another world above the sun. All right, well, that was it. We're back to Ecclesiastes. How's that for a teaser? You're going to see this world all through this sermon series. So when you see the word vanity, now you're right, I'm going to do you a favor, I'm going to do you a, um, a solid here, because this is huge if you want to understand this book. And most people, I'm going to tell you, most of the people I'm reading and studying from, they're not, they're not connecting this. When you see the word vanity throughout Ecclesiastes, here's what you have to do, right? Just get your mind ready. Take the word vanity and connect it immediately to the Genesis 3 word curse. Vanity connects to curse. You see, God created the world. He created this world. And every square inch of it, you didn't know this, right? Every square inch of all of creation was saturated with his glory. You know what that means? It means that every single thing that God ever created, Genesis 1 through 2, had not only the potential... It had the actual realization of 100% giving glory to God. It all gave glory and made God famous. It reflected who he is, his beauty, his love for creative order, for peacefulness. It did, at least, until Adam and Eve sinned. And when they sinned, it would be really simply, this is a huge understatement, but like taking a baseball and throwing it against your bathroom mirror on the wall. It just shatters the mirror into a million reflective, refractive pieces. That was what sin did to the cosmos. It didn't take it away, it didn't take away the ability to bring glory to God. It just made a mess of everything. You can't get an accurate view of it. It's reflecting something, but it's not reflecting God accurately. You and I were made in the image of God, but yet I sinned terribly this last week. I'm kind of assuming you probably did too. And so we don't really reflect the glory of God perfectly, but that's part of what God's doing in the Spirit of God. He's making us more like Christ so that more and more that that glory were being transformed into it, according to Paul and the Corinthians. See, the result of sin, Adam and Eve's, brought about God's immediate judgment upon his entire creation. So here we go. You ready? All of a sudden, you got meteorites. You didn't have meteorites in Genesis 1 and 2. You've got living cells beginning to die and death becoming the eventual end of all the living. You've got the second law of thermodynamics where everything moves from order now to disorder. None of that happened in Genesis 1 and 2. It all was introduced when Adam and Eve sinned. Now work becomes toil. That's a different word. 
complete with thorns and thistles and interruptions and frustrations. And now pain is going to greatly increase in childbirth, ladies. But even more than that and much deeper than that, there's going to be a lot of sorrow in raising children. And terribly, after pronouncing judgment, God said, Genesis 3, verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Why? They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden. They're expelled. They're banished to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, that means Eve as well, humankind, and at the east of the garden of Eden. And he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword to turn every way to guard the way to the tree of life. By the way, this is mercy. This is mercy. God doesn't want sinners to live forever and suffer forever. So he banishes them, not to the west and not to the north or the south. It's very deliberate, very intentional. You'll see this all through the Bible. To the east of the Garden of Eden, the land of Nod. Well, we get the land of Nod the very next chapter. Cain kills Abel. The first murder. And God hands him the sentence for his crime. And part of that sentence included verse 16 of chapter 4 of Genesis. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. You see, the theme in Ecclesiastes is that everything under the sun is under this curse that God leveled to mankind. There's going to be thorns and thistles. Nothing's going to bring you enjoyment by the sweat of your brow. You're going to eke out an existence, but you're not going to be able to be completely satisfied. Now, friends, listen, we all live east of Eden. We all live in the land of Nod. We all have a life full of vanity of vanities. We have a brief existence thin with substance. So we've got a book now, 33 times in Ecclesiastes, that Solomon's going to reiterate that life under the sun is full of vanity. Why? Because it's been under the curse of God. Everything under the life, or everything under the sun, is everything that this world offers apart from God. It's temporary, lacks substance like a shadow, disappears as the sun rises. So vanity speaks of a briefness of brevity, transitory, and insubstantial nature of everything under the sun. So let me just sum up everything I just said. Hopefully in one sentence. You ready? Because of the sin of Adam and Eve, every one of the people born from them, which is every human being that's ever lived, is born east of Eden in a land under the sun that if you pursue what is in it, you will find your brief life incredibly, unavoidably unfulfilling. See, vanity is connected with the word curse. There's nothing east of Eden. There's nothing under the sun that can in itself bring satisfaction. By the way, John Wesley preached through Ecclesiastes. I'm going to give you one of his quotes. 
He said its grand truth is that there is no happiness out of God, meaning apart from God. You just can't find happiness under the sun. There's nothing in this world system that can bring your soul satisfaction. Nothing. So why does Ecclesiastes exist? Why did God write this book through Solomon? Well, I think I can answer that, at least in part. You ready? It has the power of the gospel to bring you and to bring me to a place where, apart from God, we are ruined. We are bankrupt. This is why God sent every sinner into the, e the land east of Eden. It is to bankrupt them morally. It is to get their soul to hit the very bottom of the chasm. Because it's only when we hit bottom that we turn up to the Lord. Is this not why Jesus started the, the most incredible sermon ever preached? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Does it not mean poor in spirit to hit the bottom, to have an impoverished soul, to realize that nothing under the sun can satisfy you, that all of your efforts and your brief ephemeral life are going to mean nothing unless it's connected to the world above and to the one who rules? So are you tired? Are you weary? Are you helpless? Well, that's good because you're experiencing the result of a life lived under the sun. And you are on the threshold of the greatest life change you could ever experience, which is salvation. Now I'm going to say one more thing and then we're going to get to point three and we're going to tidy this message up. Something really weird happened to the Israelites. I mean, it's weird. They were slaves in Egypt. God redeemed them, meaning he bought them out, he rescued them, he saved them, and he, he is leading them on the way to the promised land that he had already carved out for them and given to them. But on the way to the promised land, whenever they would get frustrated or struggle, they would keep saying this really bizarrely odd thing. Oh, if only we were still back in Egypt where we ate melons and leeks. In other words, where our life was so happy. Are you kidding me? They were slaves. They were overworked, underpaid slaves. See, the book of Ecclesiastes has two layers to it. One is to bring those who do not believe, who are living under the sun, trying to find their satisfaction and their meaning and their purpose, to the very end of themselves, to a ruined soul, so that they can turn back to God or turn up to God for the first time. That's one layer, but there's another layer. And by the way, most of us now are going to intersect with this one. It's for those in the church. He's preaching in the church. It's for those in the church who already have been saved, who've been taken out of the Egypt of your sin and are onto the promised land of your sanctification, eternal glory with the Lord, yet you, your eyes keep getting off the promised land, they keep getting on the world, and your soul begins to follow back into sin, and all of a sudden Ecclesiastes keeps ruining you. It keeps dropping the bottom out from under you, and it keeps asking you, Christian, what gain do you have? You have no gain. So turn back to God. Now, I'm going to be really brazenly honest with you. That's probably very likely some of you here right now. You're a Christian. But i got to tell you, you're probably not acting like one. Probably not walking with the Lord. 
Man, you are rooted in this world. You are living under the sun. And your soul is rapidly falling into the red ledger negative. There is no gain for you. Yet you are unhappy and you don't know why. I'm going to tell you why. You will not find your soul's satisfaction in anything under the sun. Your life is full of vanity. It is time to repent. And Solomon's going to help you do that. Well, the skeptic is going to say, well, Solomon, and by the way, we have skeptics in our church. I get to get emails from them. They're awesome. I really do like them. So the skeptic is going to go, Solomon, what are you talking about? What is this vanity of vanities, life under the sun? How do I know you're talking the truth? I don't see it that way. Well, Solomon's going to absolutely prove his case. Point number three, what is the evidence there is no gain under the sun? He is an absolute master Solomon is, of what every good preacher has to learn to do. Here's what you got to learn to do if you're going to preach. When you're preparing your message, you got to anticipate objections. You've got to anticipate the questions in the audience, called the Socratic method. I'll put it a little more modern. It's the mixed martial arts style of preaching, where you force a submission from the skeptic who's likely reacting right now, Solomon, I like my life just fine. So maybe the problem is you. Maybe it's not really what you're seeing. So Solomon starts stating some basic general observations. Verse 3. A generation goes, a generation comes. But the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. What's he doing? What's he saying? I'm going to tell you what he's doing. He's in the cage. He's putting a beat down on the skeptics. He's saying this. Everything under the sun will grind you to an unending monotony. Life goes on with or without you on this planet. Okay, we don't like hearing this, but let's just brace ourselves for the truth. When you die, and I'm going to die, you're going to die. When we die, we're going to be a memory that comes up around the Thanksgiving table by our kids and our grandkids. And eventually, enough generations go by, you're not even going to be mentioned at the Thanksgiving table. You have blinked out of existence in the memory banks of your prodigy. People are going to leave your graveside service. Come on, I do funerals. I do probably eight to ten of them a year. And I see it all the time. They're going to be heading back to work. Or they're going to be going to the reception luncheon that follows. And they're going to be wondering on their way. I wonder what kind of food's going to be there. They just buried you. That's your future. That's my future. The day I am put in the ground, the sun will have come up that morning and it's going to set that evening. Some of us don't like that. We would really like the sun to just stop and recognize our passing. It's not going to happen. After I'm gone, the wind's still going to blow. The four seasons are going to come like they always have. In other words, friends, listen, let's just be honest. Neither your life or your death are ever going to affect anything that operates under the sun. So why are you running after everything this world offers when it's not even going to notice when you're dead? We got a really famous rapper that just died. Listen, nobody's going to be talking about him in a week. A month. They're not. 
What gain is there in making your mark in this world or getting that position in your career? You're going to be forgotten. You're going to be replaced by the people in your job that come after you. And for those who live with their eye on what could be gained under the sun, that's a total loss. That's really bad financial, financial planning. But Solomon is setting us up. He's trying to convince us that there is life above the sun. You can live with your eye on that and your gain there will be incalculable. But if you're living under the sun, you've got a total loss on the very day that you die. Now that's not morbid, to be honest with you. That's incredibly, beautifully awakening. What's morbid is living like the matrix in a cocoon feeding a machine, never even knowing it. But the skeptic, okay, let's be honest, might slip that submission hold, so Solomon goes to his next technique, letter B. Everything under the sun is tired. Verse 7, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. I mean, I'm going I'm to give you an illustration of what he's talking about. From a Greek myth about a guy named Sisyphus. Might have heard about it. Got, got the gods really mad. He was condemned by Zeus, the father of the gods, and to, for the rest of his eternal life, Sisyphus was going to have a boulder that he was going to roll to the top of the hill. But once he got to the top, it was going to mysteriously, immediately plummet to the bottom. And he was condemned and consigned to an eternity of going back down to the bottom of the hill and rolling it back up again. This is exactly what Ecclesiastes is talking about. The Rolling Stones captured it pretty well in their song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. It's been said that man, this is incredible, the man is the only creature that will speed up when they're lost. Think on that for a moment. The rest of the animal kingdom, the rest of creaturehood, knows to stop and get their bearings, but not mankind. They speed up. If you're not getting satisfied, then we'll just simply pick up the pace and try everything you possibly can. Maybe it's sex this week. Maybe it's drugs next week. Maybe it's more money and a new car and more music and a new CD. The artist of your dreams is popping a new Tuesday album. Maybe that's going to fill up my soul. Listen, it's going to be another month when you're tired of that one. You and I are nothing but Sisyphus when we live under the sun. It's no wonder that Romans 8 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, God, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom and the glory in the, of the children of God. Listen, it's, it's like this. You can't wait to get your license. Do you remember that? Your driver's license? Go to college, I just need to get my license, I just need to go to college, I gotta get out of Easton, and I am gonna be free, and I am gonna be happy. You get to college, and all of a sudden, college is hard, it is tedious, it is boring, it's not going the way that I thought. My social life is not skyrocketing to the stars, it's actually plummeting, so you can't wait to graduate and get out of college and out of stupid papers and professors and get a job that you really love, but you get that job, and then all of a sudden you can't wait to get married because when you get married then you're going to fulfill the american dream you're going to be happy and fulfilled so you get married 
<laughs> but soon the missing pieces, you don't have kids. I've got to have kids to get my happiness. You start a family, but then you realize my job income with a family is not going to work. I need that promotion so you can get a bigger and better life and a better home for your kids. It never ends under the sun. If I can just get there, wherever there is, or get that then my life will be complete. That's the vanity of vanities. That's what it's like living under the sun. Solomon, though, he's going for the chokehold. He's going to submit. He's going he's to knock his opponent out. The skeptic is going on. He says now, Solomon does, everything under the sun is the same old, same old. There's the chokehold. He's not getting out of this. The skeptic will not get out of this one. Verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been. It's been already in the ages before us. So friends, there's nothing new, Solomon says, under the sun. Listen, that can bring gain. Are you, now, somebody's going to think, well, was Solomon rocking an iPhone 8? Obviously not. He didn't have the internet. He didn't have cars. He had beautiful ponies and chariots. You don't have them, do you? He's not talking that there's not going to be technological new things coming. He's saying that there's nothing new that will ever bring a positive gain, a positive return on investment. There's nothing new that's going to bring the soul satisfaction. Alistair Begg quipped once, yes, we put a man on the moon, but there was nothing for him to do except stare at the earth. Well, that's really it. You get to the top, what do you do? You keep staring down. The old adage is correct. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Okay, I got to tell you, though, this opponent that Solomon's up against, <coughs> super good opponent, very good adversary. He hasn't tapped out yet. Right, so mixed martial arts, do that, and the referee stops the match. He, that skeptic's not tapping. Solomon tightens a hold a little bit more, verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. You might object, well, wait a minute, that's not true. We've, we still think about Martin Luther King Jr. and Martin Luther and Abraham Lincoln. and I mean, we still remember these people. Solomon included. That's not what he's talking about. What he means is that the vast majority of billions of people are forgotten soon after they're gone. Now, you might be familiar with the Fallout Boy song, Centuries. That's a lie. They're not going to be remembered for centuries. When they're gone, they're not lasting long in the memory of anybody. Les Miserables wrestles with this very fact. Will the world remember you when you fall? Could it be your death means nothing at all? Is your life just one more lie? That's what it means when you get, you get to this point, when you live under the sun. This is the meaninglessness, the vanity of living for what this world has. Now Solomon has concluded his introduction. He's made his point, his thesis, crystal clear. He's going to spend 11 chapters elaborating, writing the body of his essay. 
And here's what he's going to elaborate. Living for what is under the sun will make your brief life utterly unsatisfying, utterly ungainful. It will ruin your soul if you look for your fulfillment east of Eden. It cannot be found. You must be then, please listen, whether you're a non-believer or a believer whose lights are blinking out for the Lord, you got to listen to this. You ready? Remember, gauge your mind. You've got to be like Abraham, who moved, listen, from the east to the west. Be like Israel, who crossed the Jordan from the east to the west side. These are very, very intentional directions that the Bible gives. You've got to enter the temple of God through the east gates and travel to the west where his mercy seat is. You've got to be a little extra biblical like Tolkien and his Lord of the Rings and the ship of your life must sail into the west. Because there's another life above the sun. And to enter that life, are you hearing me? Don't, don't miss this. This could save your soul. Not because it's my words or I'm saying it in a wonderful way. This is the gospel truth. If you enter that life that is above the sun, you can only enter it through Jesus. Meaning you've got to confess your sins that drove you out of the presence of God like Adam and Eve and like Cain. And believe that his death and his resurrection can bring you back. And when he does, when he, re, when he brings you back, he will make you like a new creation that lives, hear this, under the sun, but with your eye on eternity. Under the sun, but lungs that don't breathe this world's air anymore. It's utterly unsatisfied. And if you try, you're like a fish gasping on the shore. He, you've got lungs built for better air. You've got eyes that can see eternity. And the journey that Solomon is about to take us on, it's going to be jarring, thrilling, convicting at times, but listen, it's going to be potentially life-changing. So I hope you're here for the ride, amen?